wow, I'm going to have to up my game after seeing that intro to a new series that we're beginning this week. Um, it's going to kind of build, but I'm going to have to kind of back into this with, um, with a word I want us to think about. I want us to think about evaluation. Uh, I don't know if any of you, if you've lived long enough, when you hear the word evaluation, maybe it puts cold sweat down your backbone because maybe you thought everything was going good until the boss called you in and gave you an evaluation and later that afternoon maybe you were looking for a job. Maybe you've had a good evaluation where you're just going along and all of a sudden you get called in, you get a promotion and a raise, but it's a part of life, evaluations. We're constantly evaluating people's systems and things like that all the time. Uh, We start out in school and you get a report card and a report card is an evaluation of how you're doing at math, how you're doing at science, how you're doing at PE, how you're doing at art. Um, I think of the times in high school and college that you stand out in front of the athletic department and see if your name showed up, if you made the team, or maybe first team, second team, scrimmage squad. I think of the times that uh, uh, out in front of the, in the drama and the music department, I remember trying out for a lot of parts, and you'd go and you'd see what part you got in the play or the musical. And, and I always thought those were kind of cold, you know, because they just put their name on a list and you didn't know thumbs up, thumbs down. You really didn't know what you had done. Uh, I remember one evaluation I had in 1999 at the other end of this building. It was probably the worst day of my life, but in some ways it was the best day of my life. The church had grown for about 60, 70, up to about almost 300 people, and I remember going to staff that day, and it got real quiet, and they said, Van, we need to talk to you, and of course, it started out, Van, I want you to know that we love you a bunch, but nevertheless, yet, you're driving us crazy, you know, and I was kind of a, you know, micro, you know, trying to manage, you know, and just too controlling, and I didn't have any leadership skills to take the church to that point, uh, beyond that point. And I remember uh, them saying to me that, man, you can leave, but in five years you'll face this again. And, and I remember it was real powerful. I went home that day at lunch and talked to Lori and broke into tears. And, you know, and Lori was so sympathetic. She just said, I bet that hurt a lot. Then after a few minutes when I stopped crying, she says, but everything they said to you was true. <laughs> I'll tell you, a good evaluation is so powerful, so important. Uh, I think some people say, well, I have the gift of evaluation, you know. It's different if you're dealing with processes and products, but when you deal with people, you got to kind of watch that. You got to choose your words. I think even raising parents, we're constantly evaluating our kids, and one thing I would encourage you to do is to evaluate positively as well as negatively. Probably lean toward the positive and catch your kids, catch your mate doing good stuff, or otherwise that daily evaluation will bring a grind and and destroy uh, your life. It's interesting that Jesus, when he came to to this earth, we read in John 1.14, we read this, what Jesus said as he showed up, he came, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He showed up in this world with grace and truth. We did an entire series on this, and this world is so desperate for both of these, and that tension between the two are so important. You know, there are entire churches and movements that's all about grace. Let's all accepting everything's great. We love you, we love you, we love you. 
but there's no truth. And then there's others that just hammer away, hammer away, and there's no grace. And so we see that when Jesus shows up, and we'll see shortly that he shows up with grace and truth as we move forward in this message. Also in the New Testament, there's some evaluation between how the Holy Spirit does evaluations and how Satan does evaluations. When the Holy Spirit shows up, he convicts the world of sin, righteousness and judgment, and the Holy Spirit convicts us uh, through specific sin. I, I notice when the Holy Spirit deals with me, it's very specific in that day, and he gives me hope through repentance. But when the devil or Satan shows up, he blankets us with condemnation. It's just like our many sins. You messed up here, you messed up two years ago, you messed up 10 years ago, you continue to mess up, you are a mess up, there's no hope, quit trying. And I think we need to understand some of these as we look at evaluation because in the revelations, Jesus himself shows up. The Spirit of God begins to look at these seven churches in Asia Minor and gives an evaluation. Now, since this is an opening to this uh, series, I need to probably just give you a little about the school of thought on Revelation on these seven churches. There are four basic camps uh, that deal with this. One is the uh, preterist camp, and the preterist camp kind of has this feeling that it's written for the people of that day. They view that these prophecies of John from this island of Patmos, it was kind of like on that day, that's where that prophecy, those were where those words spoke, and it ended in that season. There's a historicist view where they look at kind of a pandacea of history from the time Jesus was here to the time Jesus returns, and a lot of dispensationalists will look at, you know, this church is for, is for these years in history, and this church represents these here years in history, and uh, dispensationalists will kind of use that historicist view. Another is the futurists, where they basically look at Revelation, these seven churches, it's all in the fu future, it all clicks on those last days, and that's where it becomes clear. And then there's there's an idealistic kind of view that is kind of metamorphical. There's allegories, imagery, you know, this represents this, this represents that. There's a battle between good and evil. And those are four camps that look at Revelations and the seven churches in that way. Now, I, I'm going to kind of look at it in more of a simplistic way. I believe the Holy Spirit, I believe Jesus came, gave an evaluation of these churches that was very important for that day, yet there's a commonality in life. Have you noticed that? That sometimes what's happening in my house or your house happens in the house next door. What happens in this church happens in that church. There's, there's not a lot of difference between history. You see things repeat over and over again. I believe the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself, gives this evaluation that rings out not only at that time, but throughout history. These are, you know, these are potholes that we have a tendency to step in on a regular basis. So we're going to begin Revelations 2.1. And I encourage you to read through some of this. It'd be, we're going to look at a different church each week. So we begin in 2-1, and we read this. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lamps, uh, lampstands. Now, we're not going to hit all this. Uh, Darren and Tyler are preaching on this. I'll let Darren and Tyler deal with the lampstands and the seven stars. We're going to look at Ephesus um, uh, this morning. And Ephesus was quite a place. It was quite 
a city. Paul spent three years of his missionary journey in Ephesus and preached, and the gospel began to spread, and a church got birth. Ephesus was a major port city that was attached to this incredible Roman you know, super highway. This was actually on a mail route. All seven of these churches were on a, a mail route of communication. The population of Ephesus was 250,000 people, second biggest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, the tempest, uh, Temple of Artemis was there, also referred to as the Temple of Diana. Uh, it was an amazing temple. Just to give you what the city looked like, I think we have a picture of it. It had 127 pillars around it, each 60 feet tall. And this wasn't the only building they had like that. They had a real famous library, one of the greatest, uh, uh, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But they also had a great library that was there, and uh, one of the best libraries at that time. It's kind of interesting. There was a tunnel from the library to a brothel. You know, so if a husband said, hey, I'm just going to the library tonight, that wasn't a good thing. You know, so that was there. It, it had a, a modern bank. One of the first banks was in the city where kings and merchants would put their treasuries in a safe place. It had the original indoor shopping mall, incredible shopping mall where they had artisans. They had tradesmen. You know, they had, you know, they had you know, you go there for your groceries too, but it was an indoor shopping mall that was incredibly carved out, beautiful architecture. They had marble, the, the main roads were made out of marble slabs. Uh, they had two major uh, venues. They had a smaller one of a thousand where a lot of times the city councilmen would come, different people came. Paul was actually in this place where they would speak and they would debate. And then they had a 25,000 seat amphitheater. This was quite the town. But during the writing, they were having a problem with their port and they were trying to dredge the port out because it was a deep harbor and it was filling in with silt. So for about this time that the book was written for about 50 years, they tried to get the silt out out of the harbor and they were unsuccessful the harbor began to fill in and it became a shallow port and Ephesus lost a lot of its prestige so it starts out this church that Paul starts very powerful church in Ephesus starts out uh, we read this in Revelations 2 2 through 3 I know your works your labor your patience that you cannot bear with those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. That's pretty strong. That's some pretty powerful stuff. I, I like that first statement, I know your works. God knows. He not only knows their works, he knows the works of our church. He knows the works of our life. He knows us. He not only knows what we do, but he knows why we do it. Not only, you know, so often when we think about this, we think that God knows all of our evil, all the bad things, but he also knows our potential. He also knows our capabilities. He also knows what we could be like if we yielded totally to his lordship and we were led by the spirit he knows our giftings god knows uh he gives this description that's pretty amazing he knows that they were laboring for the kingdom there they were in this magnificent city and they were focused on kingdom things that's a big big line they kept their focus on kingdom things twice he mentions patience 
Sometimes I don't even have patience one time. You know, I struggle. How many people struggle with patience? Hurry up, man, move on. It, 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 twice he mentions patience. He says they're doctrinally sound. They're not flaky. They're not chasing the latest, the greatest, what's happening over here, over there. But they're, they're doctrinally sound. They persevered. They finished. This is huge. They finished what they started, what they did, what they planned, what they heard from God. They finished. They persevered. They were doing kingdom labor, great outreach. In fact, these six other churches that we're going to travel to over these next, next weeks, they were actually multi-sites of the church of Ephesus, churches that they reached out to, and they had not grown weary. I know lots of times in my life I get weary. They, they just kept on. They just kept at it. But then in Revelations 2.4, we see this. Nevertheless, but yet, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And that's a, that's a pretty strong statement. We'll see in a few minutes that this was going to bring judgment on them. They had the great list of what most pastors would say, just give me two members like those people at Ephesus. You know, just give me two Imagine if you had five, but they had a church full of people like this. Yet, nevertheless, there was something in them that was going to disqualify them, that was going to bring judgment on them. I think of 1 Corinthians 13 where it talks about you can have great faith so that you can move mountains. But if you don't have love, you're what? Nothing. I mean, you can all types of signs and wonders can be coming out of your life, but if you don't have love, you are what? Nothing. And then it, it goes on. I mean, you can feed the poor. You can build doggy shelters for dogs. You can, you can care for the elderly, elderly daycare centers. You can do all types of stuff like that. But if you don't have love, you are nothing. Revelations uh, 2 5, we, we see this uh, that comes up. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, repent and do the first work, or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand. From its place unless you repent. They were in a very dangerous place. It's interesting, Jesus, in the end of John, as he's doing some deep teaching with his disciples and his followers, the main thing he's focusing on is the royal law of love. You've got to walk in that royal law of love. And the question might arise, was he talking about they had lost their love for the Father God? Or was he talking about they had lost their love for people? I think it's both and. I, I, I really realize my capacity to love people cannot be there unless I have a love for God. That's from where it comes. That's where it seems like it flows. Now, through the years, I've done a lot of pre-marriage counseling. I, I try to figure out one time, somewhere, you know, before I came here, I was at a church where I was the marrying, bearing pastor out there in Norfolk and Virginia. I did a lot of weddings, a lot of funerals. I had one black suit I would wear for both. And um, very similar, there's a death in both cases. Let me just, uh, that's all I'll say about it. But, um, but a lot of pre-marriage counseling. And, you know, and probably 400 to 500. And, and, and you get in there and you get that young couple pre-marriage counseling. They're all giddy. They're all laughing. They're, you know, a lot of real touchy. And, and the first thing I do is say, bring up your chairs closer. And, man, they'll bring up their chairs right next to each other. In just a few moments, they're touching each other, messing with each other's ear, patting each other. And they're just looking at each other. And you have to say, hey, look, look up here. And one thing that I do is I'll stop in the middle of those one sessions. I've got a very serious question. I want you to look at me right now. I'm going to ask you a very serious question. What are you going to do when you fall out of love? When it's like 
You, you can't stand to see him come home. You, you rejoice when she goes off to work. You know, what are you going to do when you fall out of love? And they're just dumbfounded, like, you know, what are you talking about? I said, it's going to happen in three to six months, maybe two years, maybe 20 years. But there's going to come some point that you, you say, gosh, I really don't get a zing when I see them. You know, something, something is missing. Because I'll tell you, I, I do post a lot of post-marriage counseling, maybe even more so. And that couple comes in, I say, bring up your chairs. And one will bring up their chair at one end of the desk. And one will bring up the other end of the desk. They'll be looking out the window. They'll be looking at the wall. They won't be looking at each other. They don't touch each other, you know. And it's interesting, in pre-marriage counseling, you ask, why are you marrying this person? And, man, they go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. It's just like, you know. <laughs> and um, tell me something, pre-marriage counseling, tell me something that drives you crazy that this person does that you can change when you get married. Well, maybe not really nothing. You know, and then, you know, post-marriage counselor, they come in, tell me one thing that you like about this person that, that you fell in love with, and they just grow silent. And then you ask, what are they doing wrong? And the conversation begins and goes on and on and on. So, this is an issue. This is a real issue. We can fall out of love. And I want to be honest, this church had lost their first love. And I'll be honest, in my life, there have been times that, man, I'm just going through the motions. And I realize, man, I don't have a lot of love for people right now. Have you ever been that way? You know, it's just like ministry's great. It's just the people. <laughs> you understand? You know, you just get in that. And I've struggled because I'm, the way I'm wired, I'm, I'm just a very responsible person. I take it very personally. And when there's a need, I just jump, 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 jump. And there are times in my life that I realize that, and we can call it burnout, but it's really we've lost that, that first love. We've, we've lost that passion. There's a lot of passages we can speak on, a lot of different directions at this point, but I want to focus on this in the next few minutes, how to fall back in love. I'm going to cut to the chase, how to fall back in love. This can apply the church this can vibe to individual believer this can apply believe it or not to your marriage and you might not be married but it'd be good to remember this because you will need this let's read again revelations or read revelations 2 5 how to fall back in love revelations 2 5 remember therefore from where you have fallen repent and do the first works or else i will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent there are three things that are mentioned there we, we see this word, remember. Then we see the word, repent. And I think there's, there's some wisdom to this order. And then remember those first works, those first works, to do those first works. Let's start just with remember. Um, David was a man after God's own heart. God testifies to this. And I think we get a glimpse of what remembering looks like in Psalm 77, 10 through 12. He was a man that understood this. And in Psalm 77, 10 through 12, and I said, this is my anguish. And I think David had those times where uh, sometimes that can be translated as sin or weakness or this is my mistake. I think there were times that David struggled. I think there are times that we, our love gets messed with. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. 
Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your works and talk of all your deeds. I think, I think remembrance is huge. I've got a journal right next to my desk. And I've written in the journal. I keep writing in the journal even things that I've forgotten. Times that God has come through in my life. Times where I felt the presence of God very strongly. Times that their prayers were answered. Times that I was in a tough time and I didn't feel there was a way out and God moved. And I like to go back that, to that and to remember, to celebrate those times. And it's amazing as I read through that journal how all of a sudden, you know, you know, I get giggly on the inside. I get expectant on what God's doing and how he's still with me because I remember how God had moved in the past. And I think there's times that we, we need to celebrate and go over that. Even as a couple, there's a lot of times that you can just begin this list of negative things, just negative things, and you can just focus on that. Either you can pull out the negative or you can pull out potential. And sometimes even as a couple, when you think back to, remember when we did this, and remember those days, and how thankful I am for this, how thankful I am for that, other than just, hey, this is what you did wrong today, this is what you did wrong yesterday, this is who you are, and I just cannot stand you. It's amazing how just that shift of remembering and being thankful can, can be powerful. Jesus talked about the ten, lep- you know, the 10 people that had leprosy on their body and he healed them. And nine of them just went on their own way. But one turned around and said, hey, Jesus, I just want to thank you. And sometimes we don't turn around. We're like those other nine that God answers our prayer or does something miraculous in our life. And we keep going on so much that we forget we don't remember what God has done in our lives. Second word he brings up is repentance. And I think remembrance can kind of set us up for uh, repentance. Because sometimes when we, when we look and we remember, we realize that, man, I've kind of divorced God. I've kind of walked away from God. I, I'm kind of not spending any time with him. I'm just doing stuff. And, and you, you, you realize that you haven't brought God into your life. And, and there's that need to, to make a shift from the negative to the positive from the duty of the day to the passion and joy of loving, from boredom to, man, God, there's an adventure. What are you going to do? Um, love is a verb. There is action involved. It's, it's not a noun. That's why a lot of people fall out of love because they're looking for that noun, but it's action determinant on what we're doing. And so I, I think we've got to make that shift when we repent, and we've got to realize, man, I've got to walk a different direction. I've got to walk out of this negative. I've got to walk out of this boredom. I need to walk toward God. I think there's something about repentance sometimes that you, you stop, and I've had to do this many times sometimes to get back to the love of God. I, I just stop. I says, I've got a lot of activity, a lot going on, but what's important? Whether it's focusing in on Lori, just saying, hey, I'm just not going to show up today to that. I'm going to show up in her life today. And same way with God. I'm going to, you know, I've got all these things to do, but I'm not going to make a move until I move with God, until I reconnect with God, until I get my life back on that track. And then the last thing he shares is to do the first works. I think there's some insight here. Uh, so often when we try to connect with God, we try something new or maybe read this book or try this program. But he says, go back to those first works. What you did when you first fell in love. And I think, you know, I, I guarantee there's some crazy things some of you guys did for your gal when you were dating her 
And some of you girls, I mean, some of you girls were up in tree stands at four in the morning, you know, because you wanted to connect with that person. Just, just so glad to be at four in the morning on a day like today, just because you love them. I always think about Lori. I, I remember one time I, uh, I was talking to her on the phone, and she was out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and she said, there's a new Arby's open up. I would love to go to that. And so at about 2 o'clock that night, I left Atlanta, drove all the way to Tulsa, knocked on her door, and she was surprised to see me. I said, I'm here to take you to Arby's. We went and ate at Arby's, and I turned around and drove back. And, you know, that's a lot of hours. How could you do that? I was in love. You know, and, and, and years later, and I've shared this with many people years later, I'm here at the church fixing to leave, and Lori says, could you go over to, to Walmart and bring home a couple gallons of milk? And it's like, that's, that's all the way in the back of the store. That'll take me, that'll take me 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, and you see those first love moves. With your mate, you, you just got to start dating her. You got to start chasing her. You got to make your kids. If your kids aren't gagging, you know, around you because, you know, you're chasing your wife, you, you probably, you need to do some of that stuff. But the same thing with, with God. You know, what were some of those first works? And I, I remember in ninth grade coming home from school, and the first thing I did was get, I had an old living Bible soft cover, and I said, I'm, I want to read this Bible. I want to know who God really is. I don't want to read some other book that talks about God, but I want to know God personally. And I remember reading through, underlining, writing in that Bible, I remember one season that, that I uh, cleaned out part of my closet, and I would get in that closet and pull that door, just, just the, the distraction of the world, and I'd get in there and, and just with my Bible and prayer and spend an hour in that closet with, with God. I, I remember there were was, there was several seasons that I said, God, if you wake me up, whatever time you wake me up at night, if I need to be praying about something, wake me up. And many times God would wake me up and I would go to a room and just, just pray. And I never was sleepy. I never got sleepy when I would do that, just make that commitment to prayer. I, I remember in 11th grade where, you know, we were so on fire and so hungry and loved God so much, whatever you want us to do. And I remember every Friday night we'd go in the inner city by twos. There was a group of us guys and we said, God, is there anyone we could share our faith with, anyone we could pray with, anyone we could help? Some of those, those first works i remember even in shelbyville when i first came here i'd i'd get a tent and go up to the campground up there with my bible and and just fast and pray and, and seek god and that's where we need to return to those those first works and and it's hard and we've talked about this at staff many times when you you get back into the presence of god and you stop and you slow down it's, it's like an onion you realize you know that onion has all that crusty stuff on it and sometimes it, it takes 30 minutes Sometimes it takes hours, sometimes it takes a day or so just to get all, all those crusty parts and return to that sweetness, that flavor of that first love of the onion. And we need to do this today because I'll tell you, people, I, I know, I think all of us have felt people that, that did stuff out of obligation. Have you ever felt that? I used to always refer to, there used to be an old commercial many years ago about, I got to make the donuts. Remember, remember that? No. Oh, yeah, we've got another old person on the stage up here. Um, but, you know, the person I have to make, the, I've had a lot of that have to. I have to love you. I have to serve you. I have to do this. But when it's from that love, man, there's a, there's a different feeling. I've had those discussions with my wife that, you know, where you, where you know that, you know, you don't love me like you used to. 
and, and you realize that you've lost that freshness, you've lost that pursuit, you've lost that, you know, wherever you want, wherever you want to go, whatever you want to do, whatever you, you want to give. I remember early on walking with God around my, all my possessions, and I said, God, is anything in here, it's all yours, and just listening. You want me to give it, I'll give it. And I remember giving away guitars, and, you know, back then you didn't have a whole bunch of, you know, I had my guitar and my stereo and a few other things, but just saying it's all yours. And sometimes having that point, God, I want that adventure. I'm tired of that boredom. What do you want to do? How can I meet with you? And that's what God wants to return us to. Ephesus was a great church from the outside, amazing, in one of the biggest cities. It was the hub church of all of, you know, Asia Minor, but lost his first love. Will you stand up with me? I'm going to ask you this morning just to, um, during the song, I, I want you to kind of, you know, get in that closet, you know, close your eyes and focus in on God. And this might just be the start, but I want you to ask God, how can I return to my first love? And I want you to think back about those things that you first did and make a determination to, to pursue God or maybe even say, God, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to give, Lord, it's yours. Mess with me. Mess with me. And just, just return back. Say, God, how can I approach you afresh? What are those first works that I need to do? And I'll tell you, God, God will meet you. And through the years, there have been, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, probably many times I've come to this place and realized, man, I lost my love for God. I'm just going through the motions. I'm going through the duty. And I've had to get back on track. And, uh, and there's nothing like making that commitment. I still do this when God, God wake me up and he'll wake me up in the middle of the night and I'll get with God and just I can just feel his presence. Or I'll get that journal out and I'll start seeing what God's done in the past and how he's met me and I'll feel that sense of adventure. I'll feel that spark. I'll feel the, that giddy feeling again. And I want to encourage you this morning as we sing this song and I'm just going to pray here that we will realize his presence because he's here. That we will He's knocking at the door, and that's really for the believer. And we're going to open that door and let him back in. We're going to press in. We're going to pursue him as a deer panting for the water. So my soul is panting after you. So let's take these next few minutes and press in to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you. I thank you that your presence is here right now. I thank you that you haven't left us. We've walked away from you. We've, we've got busy and we've done our stuff and we, we've followed programs and all our rigmarole, Lord. But you're there wanting a close relationship. The very reason you sent your son because you loved us and you wanted us to be able to connect with you, to boldly come before your presence in time of need and to hang out with you. And I pray over these next few moments that you we will allow you to move in this place. I think the biggest part of our testimony is, maybe for me it's not that prayer. I prayed in Orlando, Florida, David Wilkerson meeting when I was 12 years old, but it's, it's that relationship that came from that. You know, it's like, you know, my life is, it's dead without a love for our Heavenly Father that's real 
that communicates, that talks, that, that I can have communication with, that I'm aware of his presence. There, there, there's no great thing. Same, same way in marriage. I, I feel like, you know, we rob ourselves in marriage because we fall out of love. There's all this potential. There's all this power. And we end up fighting and just bickering and tearing each other apart, realizing, man, that's a gift, amazing gift from God of a marriage, walking in that, that love, walking together in, in that potential. And um, this is real stuff. And it's, it's something that maybe we can't solve in a day, but to set some of those times, those patterns where you, you know, if you really love someone, I, in the dating years, it's amazing how that you'll drop everything and, and run. You'll be late to an appointment or whatever it takes just because you love that individual. And the same way with God, whatever, whatever it takes. And to set aside time that you can have that face-to-face, unhurried time where you can listen, you can, you can be still. And I'm going to tell you, it's, it's, it's something with merit. It's something that changes. It's something that transforms us. There's nothing like hearing the voice of God for direction on what you should do with your life. But for that day and how you should respond to getting God's presence, there's a whole different dimension that so many of us as Christians just walk just in our own power, but to walk in God's power and his presence. And I want to encourage you, pursue God. Seek his heart with all your might. Set aside time where there's nothing distracting. And it might not be in the first day or the second day. I think of the many times I've prayed and fasted most miserable time of my life and then after you get through that fast two or three days later you just you begin to feel and you begin to look at life through a different scope thank you lord generally father i I do thank you for this day i pray that these words will will not fall to the ground but i pray as individuals as a church even as marriages that we will dare find and refresh that first love in jesus name Free to go.